Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. Well, welcome to my viewing audience. You've tuned into the Jesus Collective podcast, and it's just me, Paul Walker, your co-host today, our beloved co-host, Shauna. Well, she couldn't make it today, but I think the content that we're going to chat about today is more they're going to make up for that loss we may feel. And today I have with me J.W. Buck. He's a Christian faith leader and entrepreneur contending for a less violent world. He's also the co-founder of PAX, which is an organization that desires to equip the next generation to pursue peace, justice, and wholeness in the world. One of the ways they do that is through the creation of slow, beautiful, Jesus-centered content created by Christians of color. Uh, JW also has a PhD in intercultural studies, and he's the author of a book we're going to talk about today called Everyday Activism. Welcome to the podcast, JW. Thanks, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love Jesus Collective and the work you guys are doing. I've been a fan since pre-launch, coming up to one of your early gatherings uh, at the Meeting House. And I'm just really grateful for what you guys do. Oh, so good. So good. Well, I'd like to get to know a bit more about you. Like this, my first encounter with you is through reading this book. And I'm curious, you know, given a little bio, what what might you fill in there? What what other details could you let us know about your crazy life? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, two important pieces. The first is I have a wife, Diane, and three kids, Ahana, Anaya, Azariah, who um, take up so much of my day, love them to death. Um, and a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is through raising a family and being a husband and doing that work on a daily basis. And then... Mm-hmm. Uh, also one other thing to add to what you read is I planted a church in Los Angeles and did some community development work in the inner city of LA in an incredible neighborhood called Highland Park. So that's a little bit about me. And before that, I grew up in pretty conservative reformed evangelical spaces where I think giving Jesus his rightful place wasn't as much of a priority Nonviolence and the way of Jesus certainly wasn't elevated in very in in, in Christian spaces that were very Republican, and so I kind of came into the way of Jesus and the Jesus movement taking a historical theology class in seminary, where they said we want you to trace a part of church history where you feel like you have the most affinity to a certain group of people within Western church history. And I came across these people called the Anabaptists. And I was like, Oh my, Oh my goodness. These are my people. And since then it really set me on a trajectory, uh, not only that class, but a few professors along the way and reading some books of embracing the way of Jesus and Jesus, not only as my savior, but my teacher and my leader. And so much of that bleeds into the book that I wrote, Everyday Activism. 
So good. Well, I actually want to chat a bit about that because as I was reading a bit about your story, and I still appreciate that like you're giving your your audience like a little glimpse into your life. Like there's a bit of vulnerability to that. And like you tell the story, like you get saved in a church that was planted and founded by a bunch of people that got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. And it's like this big church. It's like 3,000 people. And it had like this kind of culture. You described it in the book. Like, you know, they did all the typical things. Sunday services, prayer meetings, youth group, membership, tithing, all that. Like it was there. It was so much of it. And then like you've already referenced, like you go off to Bible college and you have this experience, this awakening to what you call the radical Jesus. You know, a Jesus that had yeah. things to say about justice, politics, social norms of his day. And you say that it's incredible, surprising. And then you said it was jarring. And I think that's yeah. kind of a shared experience by so many that maybe like yourself find themselves reaching out of a tradition that, you know, that maybe didn't emphasize those things. So you're on this journey, you're taking Jesus seriously. And I'm actually wondering if you might share for those that are listening in that experience of the Jesus you knew that you were handed, the script you were handed and the Jesus you encountered when you're like radical Jesus. Tell us a bit more, bit more about those processes. Yeah, you know, I remember uh, going over to the pastor's house of a small reformed I think it was called like Sovereign Grace Church in Enumclaw, Washington. And I that, was friends with the pastor's kid. That and sounds Jesus like a reformed wall, church, right? They put, they put yeah, Sovereign definitely. right in the name, right? So there you go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, his kid's name was like Edwards, you know what I'm saying? So like... <laughs> and Calvin and, and like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Wesley, you know, so he was my good friend. And the Jesus on the wall was a white Jesus and something really interesting you can travel the world and our theology is reflected in the artwork, not just the books that we write, but the paintings that we paint. And so when you go to the Philippines, it happens to be a Filipino Jesus and Korea and Mexico and Africa. And I grew up like learning and placing my faith in a white Jesus. And what happened was when I began to read the new Testament, I was like, Oh, I, I placed my faith in, ancient Near Eastern Palestinian Jewish brown-skinned Messiah, and I'm crossing cultures to understand how to follow this Jesus. Again, not just as my savior, which is what I learned growing up, mm. but my teacher and my leader. Like I am an apprentice to Jesus. The way of Jesus is my way of life now. And it was jarring and hard for me to accept because it means you can't privatize Jesus. It means that you can't uh, uh, make Jesus docile. It means that you can't put Jesus in a box because when mm -hmm. you look at what he did in the new Testament, it was very radical for him to take on these titles of Messiah and I am and Lord and King and son of God. And I had to wrestle with what that meant for my life, not only placing my faith in Jesus, but placing my walk and my talk in Jesus which for me was a big shift to be like, okay, I can't only serve the Jesus that endorses a quiet, upper-class, white, like megachurch life, right? Mm -hmm. Where you take yeah. all the teachings of Jesus and you boil them down to a personal piety point 
for your life that you go home and you take to be a better person. It is that, but it is so much more than that. And that's really what I discovered on that journey. Yeah, I think a follow-up question to that I would have is like, yeah, what is true about our North American context, specifically that evangelical context that can like hide away that radical Jesus that like we can focus all our energies on thinking, hey, we're following Jesus, like we're singing the songs, we're saying the prayers, but then we obscure like some of these very like in-your-face passages that talk about justice, how we relate to the poor, that talk about being this salt and like community that sketches this vision for this embodied people of God that's an alternative rather than a servant of empire. So, so I'm curious, what is true about our context that that is that that's actually a pretty pervasive, you know, kind of living of it for many, many people. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pick out a historical reason and a theological reason and they overlap. So I would speak for, I don't want to speak for Canada. I'll certainly speak for um, the United States. And maybe you could tell me if this resonates, but mm -hmm. so many of the faith communities, the Anglo-Saxon faith communities that came here were riding the wave of the Reformation and reform theology. And that very much was connected to the Enlightenment and modernity and colonialism. So two things happened. One, with the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli are interpreting the gospel through a small subset of books. Romans and Galatians, primarily because it fit the context really well of their time. And it's okay to do that, to find a book that says this fits the context well for our time. We're going to emphasize this. Well, here's the challenge for us in the churches that I grew up in. When, when you're interpreting the gospel in a very private, individual way, which the reformers did in their time, uh, it privatizes your relationship with Jesus and it even privatizes Jesus's relationship with the world and injustice. Mm. And so the first thing is theological. And that is when you don't let Jesus explain his gospel, mm. uh, that's a misstep. And so yeah. much of the book is I frame the gospel from within Jubilee, which is what Jesus used to explain his gospel. In Mark, we have kingdom, and in Luke and Acts, which is the majority of the New Testament, we have jubilee, and that's critical. The second thing is, like, why we kind of ignore issues of injustice. Uh, you know, there, there's this word called syncretism where you're, you're taking the Christian faith and you're connecting it to something pagan and evil. So I spent time in Papua New Guinea and the missionaries are really clear, like one thing that they're trying to untangle as people come to faith in Jesus is animism, that God is in everything and, and the Trinity, that God isn't in everything and is everything. God indwells people, but not nature in the same way. And they're trying to separate that. So what is the syncretism, I would say, in North America and particularly the United States? It's, it's the connection between colonialism and Christianity. And so when we become so accustomed to the injustice that we that we live within on a constant basis, it makes it hard for us to see injustices clearly because our even our theology has enabled us to accept settler violence, the subjugation of natives, 
mm-hmm. slavery, and all of the fallout throughout history that has led to today in this interview. Mm. And that's also something. So here's what happens. We conveniently ignore passages where Jesus is addressing injustice or Jesus is talking about violence Mm. because we're like, well, it can't mean that because we've accepted violence. We've accepted a settler mentality as an appropriate Christian way of life when it actually isn't something that Jesus would endorse or do. So those are a few reasons right Mm. there, kind of emphasizing the gospel through a reformed lens, which is okay, but it's got to be put on balance with what Jesus says. And the syncretism of colonialism and Christianity makes it really hard for us to see clearly issues of justice. No, I think that's, I think that's really like dead on in, in many of the experiences I would, uh, that I've, I've kind of come across. Like certainly I think so much of the lens of how to read the gospels, like, especially someone like Luther, uh, that that's also true here in Canada. It's like Luther was like, you probably shouldn't read this. Like he thought that the Sermon on the Mount was just to make make you feel real bad so that you'd say like a prayer, uh, you know, please Jesus yeah. help me from you, Jesus, right? And it, like for Luther, it's like grace to get off the hook rather than grace to live it. And so I think that's still a pretty predominant reading even here in Canada. And I think more so in Canada in the last couple of years, we're awakened to the realities of colonialism. And I think part of the Canadian identity is to kind of say, you know, look at our um, American neighbors to the south, you know, with their empire and the huge, the largest military that's ever existed and point the figure. Well, we're not them. We're not that bad. We're the just the nice Canadians. Uh, but often like that niceness is a veil for for covering over some of these attitudes and prejudices um, here in our Canadian context. Uh, in 2020, there was the discovery of of a whole number of indigenous children's graves from our residential school system. Um, And and so there's been that ahaness that see, see what we have done. And, and, and actually it's, it's still a recent memory in many Canadians, especially our indigenous Canadian voices. Um, Like the last school Mm. closed down in 1997. And so it's still like there, I know people that have gone to residential school and it's, it's still out there. And yet we, we somehow distance ourselves from it. And yeah, I think that's, you provided some good reasons there. So, so I'm, I'm curious, like there's an alternative to this and, and part of the alternative that you've already mentioned is this idea of the gospel of Jubilee. That's what we call it in the book. And you know, one of our paradigms in Jesus Collective that we're really living into is that we believe that that God looks like Jesus and scripture is meant to be read through Jesus. And so actually, I, I just loved your chapter all about reminding us that Jesus must be our starting point to, to how we define, understand, and explain the gospel. And I think we, like, that's something we talk about all the time here. So I actually want to gear the question in a bit of a different direction. What do you think are some of the other gospels, the other good news messages that we are believing apart from Jesus, but, you know, kind of stamping Jesus on? And how is the gospel of Jubilee standing in contrast to that? So I think you've already hinted at sort of a reform reading. Perhaps there's others, other good news messages we're telling ourselves that, you know, we're kind of yeah. stamping Jesus on. Yeah. Yeah, this is what I love about Jesus coming into the first century because he he sits down and he opens up a scroll 
Isaiah 61, mm. which talks about this concept of Jubilee. And, and he, he essentially says to the Jewish nation, I am here not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Mm. And my message, my gospel is couched within this concept that was radical within uh, Jewish history that the Jewish people never actually enacted. So a little bit about it very quickly in Leviticus 25, God commanded his people, after you enter the promised land, I want you every 40, 50 years, every slave is released. Mm. Yep. Every person can go back to the land that their family originally owned, even if they lost it and it was generations ago. Mm. Real estate prices were reset and predatory lending was put on restriction. And the animals in the land were able to rest because some people who had a lot of land and a lot of animals wanted to make more money, so they overworked the land and the animals. Mm -hmm. And God said, I'm going to reset everything. And we actually don't have any data to suggest, Paul, that the Jews ever enacted Jubilee, yeah. whether it's extra yeah. biblical or biblical, mm -hmm. which is pretty incredible. Um, and I'm a Gentile, I'm not a Jew, so I don't want to speculate why, but it's a pretty radical thing. Like, do people really want to give up? So mm -hmm. it was this top-down Jubilee. And then in Isaiah 61, Isaiah brings up Jubilee in the context of the Messiah to come, which that doesn't happen all the time, mm -hmm. right? To bring this Jewish concept and say, this, this Messiah is coming, which we knew that was Jesus. And then Jesus picks Isaiah 61. He reads it, the Spirit mm -hmm. of the Lord is upon me. He talks about the year of the Lord's favor, which means Jubilee. And then guess what? He sits down and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mm. And then he tells two stories about people in the Old Testament reaching out to Gentiles when there was plenty of Jewish people to help. And then they tried to kill Jesus for this reading of Isaiah 61, saying it's the, the fulfillment, and then the stories that he told. So jubilee and justice means this. It means spiritual life and social flourishing. Mm -hmm. If we're going to let Jesus define the gospel, then it has to be these two things together, intertwined. Spiritual life, placing our faith in King Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and following Jesus, and the cross meaning that, but the cross also providing social flourishing, that everybody would be taken care of, everybody is fed. We look at injustice and say the gospel propels us to take care of these issues, injustice and mercy. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the false gospels. I think we can mm -hmm. fall on either side where we say the gospel actually is spiritual and private and it's about going to heaven one day and it's it's our get out of hell free card from the punishment we need to live in our little uh, insular church community and just wait and it doesn't matter that we're in a settler society it doesn't matter that we're destroying the environment it doesn't matter that um whatever kids and the elderly are neglected that doesn't matter because mm -hmm. to take care of our family our own this is a spiritual message and that's very gnostic yeah and that's very dangerous Mm. And then on the other side, there's there's other movements within mm. Western church history. And I think of the Great Awakenings. The first one was yeah. sinners in the hand of the angry God. The second one was very Wesleyan and the Methodist. And it was like the gospel is it, it changes society. Mm. And what Jesus 
Jesus says is that it's both. And we can lose the gospel by falling too far onto one side or the other. We can forget that we actually are sinners and we need to repent of our sins to follow Jesus into new life. And then Jesus really addressed that and told people, go sin no more. And he also was tackling from the bottom up these corrupt systems mm. of culture and that the church needs to take ownership of that. So one verse, this is the very first book to be written in the New Testament. Luther also didn't think it deserved to be in the canon. It was James. Oh, yeah. The epistle okay. of straw. <laughs> <laughs> so Luther didn't it, like uh, it because... Mm. You know, because, I mean, James all of a sudden sounds a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Faith without works is dead and separating it from the sheep from the goat. He sounded a lot like his brother after the resurrection. But he said this, pure and undefiled religion is two things. Mm. Keeping oneself unstained from the world. That's the pietistic movement we're kind of attached to. And caring for widows and orphans in distress. Mm. And it sounds a lot like love God, love neighbor, right? He sounds a lot like mm -hmm. his brother. And it's so key for us to, to keep these in tension and hold these together as we bring the gospel into the world. So there's a lot of debate about what does justice mean? Mm -hmm. Well, justice is defined, mishpat in the Bible, jubilee, mm -hmm. spiritual life and social flourishing. And the church is the embodiment of this message in the world, not from the top down anymore, like Jubilee was meant to be enacted, but Jubilee from the bottom up everyday activism. Mm. Wow. Wow. There you go. I love that. Like you're calling attention to, to the way we can kind of go in one ditch or the other. We can either be super private or, or even so social that we could care less about like the, the nurturing of, of that spiritual reality, that tension man like how yeah. do you hold that like how do you how are you holding that in, in your life yeah you know it's hard i would say it's really fashionable right now to be on the collective side of things and criticize systems and criticize um the areas of culture the aspects of culture that i talk about in the book like family or church or <laughs> religion politics economics it's actually very easy to criticize the fallenness of the systems that broken people create, and that's important. It's not as fashionable right now to read the passages where Jesus is actually radically addressing individuals mm -hmm. who are in sin or are, or are participating in a way that harms people that are made in the image of God. And so what I love, for instance, about the Gospel of John, which I don't feature in my book very much, is that it's a bunch of individual conversations with people, helping them wrestle with the way of Jesus and how to follow Jesus. And so in my own life, I mean, I got to be honest, man, it's easy for me to get caught up in the bigger conversations. It's easy to point fingers and to vilify systems and, and broader things that are wrong, especially in America, where it's like it's a it's it's a it's a mess here. It's mm -hmm. a complete mess. Empire is like a total mess all the time. At the same time, we as individuals built this empire mm. from the ground up, brick yeah. by brick, community by community. And, and so, yes, we need to address things from the top down and criticize, but we also need to hold ourselves accountable for um, the sin and the brokenness that we all hold and the addiction and 
the mental health issues and all the things that we come with as broken humans, regardless of where we're on the spectrum of like how fallible or depraved or whatever, mm. what, wherever we are, it's hard to follow the way of Jesus. And so this book is all about starting on the small level mm. with a community of people with you're busy, you're broken. And to start on that actually small level from the bottom of Jubilee. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's exactly where I want to go next, because that's something I really appreciate about what you're offering here um, in your book is, I think you're speaking to the question that many, many younger folks like myself, like I'm a millennial, I don't know where you're at on the spectrum, but like, uh, but definitely like as a pastor in ministry, like talking with Gen Z and Gen Alpha, um, there's a lot of despair these days. There's a lot of nihilism. There's a lot of like, like we know for sure that things are broken. We know for sure that that it hurts right now. And, and I think the question that comes up is like, so can we actually change anything? And, you know, often the answer yeah. that's given to people is like, well, if you want to change things, get out there and vote, participate in the political <laughs> system, right? But I understand, and you talk a bit about this in the book, like, you have a few thoughts about how to create social change. And I'm wondering if you could share yeah. about what it means to change and challenge our societal context, but, and maybe even bring in a bit of that, like that personal side that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I open up the book talking about how Jesus came to the busy and the broken and the people who didn't have a degree in public policy, or they weren't going to go into ministry or they weren't going to write a book. And what I love about the story of God, and it's something that it's a danger actually in reading the Bible, we can get caught up in the story of Moses or mm. in, in what happened in Egypt, or you pick any of the heroes of the faith, Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, but 99% of everybody who's ever followed Jesus didn't make the Bible. They didn't even make a genealogy. They didn't even make a tribe or something like that. Okay. Yep. In all of church history, these are people unmentioned, but they're a part of the biblical story and history. And that's you and me, and that's people who are listening. Okay, we're not going to make the history books, most likely. We're just not, you know, um, us as individuals. So what do we do with that? And here's the cool thing. Those are the people Jesus recruited into his movement. Yeah, the nobodies. And, and yeah. The nobodies and the somebodies, like a Matthew, a tax collector, he said, you're engaged in structural violence and you have to stop what you're doing to follow me, mm. right? And a zealot, yeah. you have to stop what you're doing to follow me. And the rest kept their job and continued doing a lot of their job, the apostles to a certain degree. But most people continued in what they're doing. So for me, I talk about looking at your day, mm. stay-at-home parent, really busy trying to finish a degree, you're working 40 to 60 hours a week. You're an intern at a new place. Um, you're that, a single mom. I mean, some of those you things sound saying? like your, your life story, that you've experienced some of that. Totally, right? Like, what, wherever yeah. we are caught where we're not going to be a public activist with like that one thing that's our cause. And so I talk about in chapter three, how to create social change. And we actually look at the latest literature on creating social change to say, how many people does it take to influence your workplace, your family, uh, the places where you're spending 80, 90% of your time anyways, even your church? What do you do to create social change? And I talk about there's slow change, 
that's the equilibrium that you value and the peace that you value. And so it's slow change over time. It's radical change where the injustice is so great that it doesn't matter. The balance and the equilibrium of the organization doesn't matter because change must happen now. Like mm. that's the talk of reformation and flipping tables what Jesus did. And then there's leaving to start something new, which the Jesus collective is a perfect example of this to mm. say, there is a need. We want to fill this need to mobilize churches to follow the way of Jesus and to, to see Jesus as, as God and, and the person that we model our life after. So I talk about like, no matter what you're doing in your day, no matter how busy or broken you are, you can make change right where you're at because that's what Jesus brought Jubilee for. And then the seven practices are just looking at seven stories mm -hmm. from the life of Christ on how to do that. So let's talk about those seven practices. And this may sound like a dumb question. Sorry, my co-host is not here. She would usually stop these things yeah. from getting through. <laughs> uh, but it's a dumb question, but why seven? Is it just like, that's the that's the holy number? It's just like, that's what you landed at? Like, how did you get to seven? Yeah, because 10 is too many and five is too few. That's a wonderful question. <laughs> and And here's the deal, man. Like, you know... I'm encouraging people to look at those seven and say, well, this should be there or, mm. I, or, oh, this one I would have picked too. You know, any pastor that's like looking at those seven, you should be like, uh, I would pick four of those, but three of those I would choose differently. The whole idea is that this book is a gateway into the life of Jesus for people who are busy and broken, but really know that they should care about justice issues. And so it's an introduction really into the life of Jesus. If People take away nothing from this interview or if they pick up the mm -hmm. book. I just want you to like learn from the life of Jesus because I pick seven passages and seven practices that we can engage in. Yes, I tried to pick the ones that like are bigger themes in the ministry of Jesus, but yeah, seven, seven, man. It's a great question. Right. <laughs> so I want to pick your brain about a few of them. And the first one that I was just like, the moment I saw it in the book, I was like, yeah, this is, this is going to be, I'm so glad that you mentioned this one. And the one I'm going to mention here is you have one called rest versus grind, rest versus grind. And which is like, I, I think amazing because I think often our lens of how we understand activism is sort of these moments where we conjure up a lot of energy and like we try to sustain a, a certain, sometimes anger for some folks, uh, but it can be exhausting. And this idea of like an activism, a way of following Jesus that comes from a place of, of rhythms of rest and retreats, as he put it, like that's, yeah. I haven't always seen that. Like I have friends that like, I would say they were really big into social justice. And I think part of the weakness of our age is like you, if you want to look for injustice, man, it's everywhere. Our social media feeds are full of it and sustaining that, um, it can be a dangerous place. You can burn yourself out. And so like when I read that, like I, like, honestly, like, just really thankful for those words. So I'm curious, how did you land on that one? Obviously, it's in the life of Jesus, but like you've you've highlighted it. This is something that's important. Absolutely. I, one, uh, I needed to write that chapter for myself because I, I, uh, I haven't talked a lot about my brokenness thus far, but a part of my 
failure in following Jesus over the years and letting Jesus not just be my teacher, but my leader is not following Jesus into Sabbath and into rest Mm -hmm. and falling into workaholism and, and, um, putting, putting the mission of God on my back. Like it's my mission and it's, Mm -hmm. it's not Jesus's and really falling into like some form of white saviorism and Mm -hmm. what brand of it, I'm not really sure, but you know, I need to even confess that, that that's something I've dealt with over my ministry career and as a Christian is um, placing my identity and in, in doing more and succeeding and, and kind of like expansion, which is a very colonial Western thing where we value work to such a degree that it's an idol. And I listen, Paul, I'm the type of person that like, it would be so much nicer if it was like the Old Testament where it's like, you can't work on the Sabbath or you die. Like that would be so much easier for me. Right. <laughs> because I'm like, okay, I guess I won't work on the Sabbath because yeah. I don't want to die. And I, I don't want to die. Freedom, some, yeah. I want to die. Don't want to die. The freedom we have in Christ uh, is, it can be really dangerous within the Western world mm. where we don't know how to stop and rest and reflect. And we're seeing the ramifications of that with and, our mental health. Yeah. And even and like turning I, towards yeah. our body. Well, I totally see it. Like a freedom that views limitations as the absence of freedom rather than a freedom of love. I, I see. What, can you share a bit more about sure. like, yeah, how that's showing up in our bodies and how, what will happen if we don't go down this journey of rest versus grind? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, Descartes said, and this is uh, one of the big shots in modernity. He said, I, I think therefore I am. And modernity really was a swing to say, uh, we are what we think we are our intellect. We are our mind. And uh, although a part of that is true. I think therefore I am. It's equally as true. It's a just, it's a hundred percent as true. I feel therefore I am. My body is therefore I am. We're, we're enfleshed embodied creatures in the world. And therefore, um, we, we have to explore the seat of our emotions and our, our bodies in being well and not be, not having a disembodied existence, which is very, Gnostic and Western and, and colonial, and it's a modernity, it's a modernity thing. Mm. It's a hangover that I suffer from very personally, right? Where Jesus, and these are the practices in the book, like he protected his disciples from overworking. Yeah. You know, he pulled them away when they had great opportunity and he said, You guys need to rest. He did this when he was experiencing the crisis before the cross and the garden. He he needed the physical, like disciples to be close to him, but also to pray for him. And he ended up being alone. Right. And, and, um, shedding tears of blood. And then, and then, um, there's another time where Jesus would just get away when he was exhausted and he had opportunities in front of him. And so I just lay out maybe like four or six, um, ways that we can be like Jesus that to be quite honest, like I have to confess on a regular basis, I have a hard time knowing how to be like Jesus in those ways. And you talked about, I talked about like modernity and and all of that, but social media and our connectivity, anybody that has a sensitivity towards justice, like 500 years ago, you were only exposed to like the injustice in your town. That's all you could really feel for. And the news that came out of your little area. And now it's like, 
we're hyper exposed and we're consuming way too much information for entertainment as opposed to mm-hmm. being an informed human to be different. And that is a massive stumbling block to longevity and the fight for justice. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways I'm a casualty of what I'm talking about. And so I had to include that, especially for people who feel deeply about the world, because we have to find ways to hand over the mission to God and not take it on our shoulders. And I'll say, I'll say this too, really quickly, Paul, at the end of the book, I, you know, of course the book is about changing the world and making change and Jubilee from the bottom up and go get to work, but we can't measure our success by the difference we make. We have to measure our success by faithfulness Mm -hmm. and love towards Jesus and that's a paradigm shift that's very un-American, I'll say. Very un-Western. Because success is numbers and growth and expansion. Success isn't faithfulness, love, obedience, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That, that that's success. And if, if uh, something flows out of that, that resembles worldly success, great. But if not, then we've done the right thing and we're moving in the right direction. Mm. Yeah, that that calls me to a journey very much like Jesus's own journey to the cross where it did, his faithfulness maybe looked, at least on Friday, it was, it was failure. And yet it mm. was victory. Like we have to see that through the lens and yet... And yet also we have this, this surprise of resurrection, the surprise of the fruit of that. And yet we may not always, we may not always see that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Amen, man. Okay. I want to talk about another one of your seven practices and we can't give them away or else like, you know, like we should tell people <laughs> to put my book <laughs> stuff all that. Uh, but the next one, and I think this is really, again, important for folks in Jesus Collective. One of our paradigms is that evil is overcome through co-suffering love. And you talk about it in your seven practice practices. One of them that you name is the cross versus the sword. And I'm wondering like, yeah. if you could tell us a bit about what you're saying there and why this is an important practice and like, how, how does that everyday person live into cross over sword? Yeah, this is such an important topic for this cultural moment. I, I start off by referencing empirical research, mm-hmm. like sociological research that actually says when you look at violence versus nonviolence, uh, there's a remarkable amount of research that that points towards nonviolence as having a higher success rate than violent conflict when you're looking to accomplish peace in a modern democratic society and how um it was hard for me to even accept the data because I've been trained in an environment where redemptive violence is gospel. That is to mm. say, peace is accomplished through many different forms of violence, state violence, community violence, interpersonal violence. And I'll just speak to um, people who struggle having been hurt through domestic violence, sexual violence, and, and, Men in particular, you know, I I did a lot of my PhD research studying the issue of violence and the two common denominators when violence occurs is alcohol and men. These are the two common denominators. um, And, you know, immediately you might go to like a bar brawl, right, or something silly like that. But um, 
the the sadness of that empirical truth that it's these two things connected is that men are in homes mm-hmm. and and uh, you know, whether cisgendered or identifying however we look at that like they're in homes and alcohol is present in homes and domestic violence and sexual violence are huge massive social issues that are largely unaddressed across uh, North America and COVID has seen an incredible spike Mm. in the abuse of children and women and men and boys. It's not excluding them completely. And Jesus as an enfleshed human man shows us a better way and a different way when everybody was expecting this warrior God to appear, the meekness and gentleness and kindness of Christ, uh, uh, where Jesus teaches on nonviolence, models nonviolence, expects his disciples to practice nonviolence, and then accomplishes salvation through nonviolence. Yeah. So that is a string of argument, which we could get into like, you know, Peter talking about it and Paul talking about it. It's, it's a string of argument that says, yeah, okay, whatever. Like we can't get caught up in the debate about whether to go to war or not. Honestly, at this point in the nonviolence debate, okay, yeah, we shouldn't go kill people, but we need to make sure our household is in order and our churches and our faith communities that we are not coercing people. We are not overcoming each other with violence in many different types of situations. Mm. So we have to double down on Jesus and get back to Jesus and not use national ethics as a smokescreen to really take seriously the teachings on Jesus because it's so relevant for this moment in history Mm. Um, and the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement and everything that has taken place, including at the meeting house. Yeah. and so I would say this, Paul, that, you know, if you're interested in learning more about that, there's the nonviolence chapter. There's also a chapter on empowerment where I, I talk about power dynamics and, and how Jesus shaped power is, is something that we need to manage and promote very carefully in our organizations, mm-hmm. uh, uh, taking care to hold individuals accountable, but also the systems within churches accountable for uh, the historical mistakes that we continue to make on this issue. Mm. So good. So good. There's a lot to unpack there. I'd be curious, was there anything else like perhaps you wanted to say just about these practices and and how how they can land in people's lives? Like, again, we're not naming all of them, but yeah, just like <laughs> as far as... <laughs> so funny. As far as... Um, I love it as far as what it means for people to actually just embody these. Like, I, I love like that towards the end of the book, you talk about like, you know, there really is this, this God, this God given call where ordinary people can live into this. This is not just for, you know, the St. Francis or the mother Teresa or Shea Clayboard or, you know, the, the people that we lift up, you know, these, these saints, um, but it's a call for, for everyday person. And I'm curious, any words to to the ordinary person? What what words of encouragement would you give to someone that wants to live into these kind of practices? Yeah, it's okay to be busy. And when I mean, when I say busy, I mean, 
90% of your day is planned out already. 95% of your day is done. Your week is done already because of the commitments in front of you. Mm. And therefore you feel disempowered to be an activist because we look up to the mother Teresa or Claiborne and, and we honor Claiborne and Teresa and Jesus and all these people to mobilize on a daily basis with people to make the change that we can make on a daily basis. And so my encouragement is I'm with you. I'm busy. I'm broken. There's not like one justice issue where I'm like, this is my thing. And I'm an activist. And that's most of us saying, mm. how do we manage following Jesus in our super broken bodies and, and, and the situations that we find ourselves in and teetering between despair and, and hope, mm. you know, for people who are justice minded, we're constantly between, I can't do it. I can't make a difference. I can't get up. And the hope that like today the world can change. And I just want to say, that's how we follow Jesus. That's how we um, as Paul says in Colossians, fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, right? That is not to say that there was something lacking in the sacrifice of Jesus. That is to say, we as the church mm. enter into the daily suffering with Christ as we co-suffer with people and love people like Jesus, our neighbors, to make the world a better place. So look at your everyday life and your everyday interactions and ask the question, mm. where am I called to bring Jubilee? And that's where you start. So good. So good. Uh, well, this has been just a rich conversation. And I'm just curious, like, if people wanted to go further, connect with you, find you, you know, out on the interwebs, as well as like, find a copy of this book, like, where where could they, they do that? Do you have a website? Are you on social media? We don't always presume people yeah. are. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've got a website, jwbuck.org, um, where some of the work is on there. Uh, obviously, you can pick up the book anywhere online. Amazon's a great place. Um, I co-lead an organization called PAX and um, madeforpax.org. For anybody listening that's like, how do we talk about mental health, cultural identity, scripture, nonviolence from a Jesus-centered uh, lens? Um, very similar to the DNA of Jesus Collective, but geared by and for people of color Go to madeforpacks.org and we have an entire publications online for free that talk about those issues from a Jesus-centered direction. And so that's another place. And then Instagram, JW Buck, those are a few places you can follow. Okay, last question for you. Uh, what gives you hope these days? What gives you hope? The global church. For me... It's uh, looking at the witness of the church in Central and South America and Africa and the Middle East uh, and, and learning and reading from pastors and theologians that are on the ground in those places, knowing that thankfully the center of the church has shifted away from the West towards um, these other parts of the world that will lead us into the future. And so the challenge with living under the cloud of empire here in North America is that um, our hubris and our importance uh, is our syncretism, you know, like to think that we are the solution. And so, so much of the book is me trying to cite scholars and people from outside the Western vantage point to, to point a light towards the future because you and I, uh, we're the future like generationally or whatever, mm -hmm. but we're not the future in terms of what God is doing on a meta level in the world. And, and that that's humbling. Mm -hmm. 
brother. That's really humbling. And it's, it gives me hope at the same time. Oh, I love that answer. Oh, and it encourages us. I just love how you're encouraging us to see the bigger picture. Uh, so good. Well, thank you to my viewing audience, uh, to our viewing audience for, for just taking this time. Uh, if you made it this far, you get a gold star. You really do. Well, just write in. We'll send you one in the mail. Uh, good luck finding our address. <laughs> but, you know, uh, so here's to keeping Jesus at the center. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Until next time.